Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Avis Bulbulian. He is CEO at Siva Enterprises. We're going to talk to him a little bit about what's going on in the cannabis space. Uh, we're, just for reference, recording this uh, kind of towards the end of April. We're in the middle of the coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic here in, uh, well, everywhere, but in the U.S. We're going to talk a little bit about how it's affecting the cannabis industry and really where it's going to go. And I think there's a lot of questions on how this is going to uh, reshape the cannabis industry going forward. You know, it's been declared an essential service, so we're kind of still in business, quote unquote, but, uh, you know, certainly having an impact now, but it's going to have a, a bigger impact going forward. And so we're going to chat a little bit about that and, you know, really kind of understand how the market's going to be shaped. So I'm excited for this. I think this is a, an exciting time, although it's a, a horrible time from a global health point of view. It's an exciting time for the industry because there's a lot of forces at play here. Uh, so I'm excited for the conversation. With that, Avis, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Why don't we start with a 
little bit of your background in terms of professionally, how you kind of got into cannabis, what was the call to get involved in cannabis, and then we'll kind of talk about what's going on in the industry now. But give us the background. How do you get involved? Sure. Uh, the way I got involved was part opportunity, part um, seeing what was happening. Got involved around end of uh, 2006, beginning of 2007. Those the homework years, started learning about the industry. I'm the guy that never smoked in high school. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I would probably get off uh, high off of secondhand smoke, but uh, I had a medical situation to come up, started exploring the industry. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end of 2007, early 2008, I was hanging out with a couple of guys and one of the guys came out and said, hey, check out what I bought at a store inventory. I'm like, you can't buy marijuana at a store inventory. <laughs> so started really getting even more curious about the industry. And one of the first thoughts I had was prohibition took the candies to the White House and they're still there. Yeah. And then at that point, it was already getting to the point where it was too big to contain and there was no way they were going to put the toothpaste back in the uh, back in the yeah. tube. So it started. Then had a, I was in the insurance field and I had a friend who gave me a call. I was like, hey, I got bought this uh, business. Can you come do a compliance walkthrough? So I went in there. Sure enough, it was a marijuana store. So I started getting involved on the cultivation side to really understand everything about the plant. Cultivation led to manufacturing. Manufacturing led to retail. Retail led to consulting. And then in 2012, we got involved with the world of licensing with Massachusetts. They're the first state to do a competitive merit-based application process. Mm-hmm. When it was all said and done, we had the high score in the state. We we're the only group that got the maximum three out of three licenses. And they had only given out 20 in that first round. So came back from Massachusetts, incorporated the company as Bullion Consulting Group, went out, did licenses in Nevada, Illinois. And then right around that time, there was a lull in licensing. So we rebranded the company at Steve Enterprises and started focusing on consulting and management. And then it's just been one evolution after another. Yeah, I'm sure the industry is moving quickly and you got to move quickly with it to keep up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So so today, what is your primary focus is advising and consulting with companies on operations, on licensing? What is your primary area of focus at this point? So we provide full service consulting. Generally, what that means is everything from A to Z, but a lot of the work, the majority of the work and one of our core competencies is state licensing because you can have all the best ideas in the world. If you don't have a license, it doesn't really mean much. So when, they, when a lot of the groups come in, what we do on the licensing process, is basically deconstruct everything about the company, rebuild it from the foundation, everything from your executive team to your financial models, to your operational SOPs, what you're in the business of. See, before it was a little bit different. Before, when you went out and you got a license, that was your business. Today, the license simply authorizes an activity. So you got to have a broader business model, business concept, and then go back and look at it. It's like, well, do I have any activities within my business model that requires me to have a license? And if so, what license do I need? Yeah. So that's the general approach we take, but it's really full service consulting, everything from your branding, your marketing to your licensing. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of work with uh, investors where they get a lot of deals. They ask us to vet it. Uh, we get a lot of operators that are looking for funding. Uh, we don't broker it, but we try to marry up the right investor with the right operator and just treat it as a value-add service. So full-service consulting. Yeah. And uh, before we kind of dive into the current situation, kind of characterize, you know, from your point of view, the market kind of ending 2019, beginning of 2020, what was really kind of the key things you saw happening in the market from kind of an operator standpoint in terms of kind of sophistication, maturation of the market? What were the big forces at play for you? You know, as you kind of looked across the cannabis industry? Well, it's interesting because there are a lot of di- different dynamics at play and you can't really look at any one of them. On one hand, you've got the operators, right? Those are more your Californias, your Colorados, your Washingtons, and your Arizonas, where they're the boots on the ground. They're the more legitimate operator. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the whole situation yeah. with the MSOs where personally, I think more the majority of the MSOs are in the business of selling stocks, not necessarily cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the yeah. lot come up. But last year, I think you saw a lot of that come to head where the market just needed to stabilize 
Yeah. A lot of people, again, primarily on the MSO front, you had these ridiculously stupid valuations going out. A lot of that got started getting pulled back. The investors were a little bit more cautious with where their money was going. On the industry front, California is the bigger news just because it's the bigger state, the bigger market. And over the last two years, three years, where California has been moving towards legalization and adopting and implementing and administering their application process and issuing licenses, a lot of eyes were on California. And with that, a lot of the operators going through the whole licensing process, going through before it was a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of operators operated more like a lifestyle than they did running it as a business with yeah. scalability in mind and investor returns in mind. So I think you saw a lot more both sides of the fence kind of sort of starting to come a little closer together. So it's going to be interesting to see how everything sh shapes up over the next year or two. But last year was a pretty interesting year, but most of it was really just stabilizing. A lot of the fluff being blown away, a yeah. lot of expectations being managed and being uh, reeled back in. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that, I mean, there's a, there was a lot of um, uh, kind of coming to terms <laughs> with, with businesses and operations the end of 19 and beginning of 20. How, how have you seen, you know, we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic. You know, many, I think eight out of the nine adult use states have declared it as essential service. So they, the businesses, cannabis businesses are still running theoretically, or at least, you know, um, they're still open for business. Now they have, you know, restrictions on them in terms of health and safety and social distancing and all that. But how have you, I guess we're like eight weeks kind of into this restrictions and, and disruptions. How have you seen kind of cannabis businesses respond to this? Which ones do you feel are kind of maintaining operations? Which ones are really kind of uh, impacted by it? What is the kind of how, how are things responding right now from your view and the people that you talk to and work with? So the legal to essential is an interesting, uh, it's interesting. It's kind of it cuts both ways. On yeah. one hand, it was phenomenal, right? Cannabis goes from illegal to essential, uh -huh. not necessarily overnight, but kind of overnight. But yeah. what happens is now you've got a nationwide focus on the cannabis industry. And if we're talking about what it's going to do for once we come out of this, the efforts towards federal legalization and all that, mm -hmm. it's absolutely phenomenal. You can point to it. A lot of the companies are stepping up to the plate, being good corporate citizens. They're manufacturing the hand sanitizers. They're getting PPBs out there. So on that sense, it's really great. A lot of the operators initially, when they're uh, when the lockdowns first were ordered, a lot of these companies had a great opportunity where sales were just through the roof. But that didn't last long. It lasted about a week, 10 days, yeah. and then it went back to normal. And in fact, it went worse than normal because initially there was that initial fear factor that the shops are going to be closed down. So a lot of people went out. Yeah, hoarding. <laughs> I'm going to buy toilet paper and I'm going to buy cannabis. <laughs> exactly. So the problem that creates is now you've got a false narrative that just because cannabis businesses are deemed essential, they can stay open. They're not suffering financially, which couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that consumer confidence is just not there. Yes, you're allowed to stay open, but our customers really coming and going. Yeah. So you have a less number of visits. I mean, on one hand, you've got uh, larger basket sizes, but you really, it's just felt across the supply chain and where it's deemed essential. If there is any capitalizing on the opportunity, that capitalization is going to come from the retailers, not from the rest of the supply chain. If you're yeah. an ancillary business, you're just sitting home twirling your thumbs waiting for the market to open up. On the cultivation side, to grow something takes that a minimum two to three months. So whatever happens now, it's very difficult for the cultivators to adapt or react to it because they're not going to see anything for another three months. Yeah. So you like can't grow a new plant overnight. Right. Yeah. So the manufacturers had a good opportunity to make some money. But by and far, I think um, it was a double-edged sword. And there's like this false narrative that cannabis businesses are thriving because they're deemed essential. And that really couldn't be further from the truth, yeah. which also ends up kind of preventing them and blocking them from more like federal uh, 
assistance. Yeah, because they're not eligible for PPP and for the disaster recovery loans and things like that. Exactly. And then when you when you even take that out of this conversation, then it becomes, well, you're essential. You're staying open. So what are you complaining about? Yeah. It's very difficult to explain all this. I have to keep in mind that when we're talking about assistance loans, those assistance loans for the small businesses, when you're dealing with a general public that doesn't really understand cannabis and all that, it's like, well, why is my money going to a cannabis business? Yeah. They're utterly illegal. So it brings up a lot of different questions. But one of the best parts about this is it really the conversation was always there, at least for the past couple of years. Right now, it's really bringing a big focus on the conversation to the point where you got senators and Congress people going out and saying, look, include cannabis businesses as part of the yeah. stimulus. Yeah, it is. It's forcing the issue a little bit. And, you know, while I don't think uh, federal government is has a whole lot of capacity on its plate to really grapple with some of this, uh, you know, legalization issues, you know, certainly it's it's forcing the it's making it clear the need that ultimately that needs to get cleaned up and, and they need to figure out a, a good, sustainable you know, federal policy around it. So, so cannabis is, is operating, but not perfectly. It is, it's going to cause, uh, I think, you know, many cannabis businesses, particularly those ones that were heavily extended, who were using, raising money to fund operations to kind of handle their growth and things like that. You know, my kind of assessment so far is that a lot of this capital availability is kind of at least on hold, if not dried up, which is going to cause some distress in the market. I mean, what's your take on how, you know, how is this going to play out in the next, you know, three, six months as, this extends as cannabis companies have to deal with the situation. What do you think is going to happen with some of these cannabis companies? So with the operators right now, it's more about cash flow management than anything else. As far as the availability of capital, capital has always been there. Who's been able to access it? Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of like I was mentioning with the MSOs versus the operators. The operators do the work. They build it up. But then the MSOs, because they're public, they're the ones that kind of are able to reel in some of those investment dollars. But investment dollars, whether it's private equity, whether it's public, has always been there at different points it's been more difficult to access right now coming out of 2019 it was getting pretty difficult to access growth capital yeah today right now the situation is when you're talking to all these investors their mindset has changed to the point where it's like where do i get the most bang for my buck when we come out of this there's still a lot of interest for it and especially since cannabis was deemed essential that's yeah. kind of reignited a different fire in these investors but the difficulty for a lot of the operators to access that capital is going to be that most of that money is going to be looking for distressed assets they're yeah. going to look yeah. to get the most bang out of their out of their buck yeah Usually you're going to get that with the distressed assets and yeah. distressed asset funds and stuff like that. Personally, I think a lot of those are also being set up for failure, but I think that's where a lot of the focus will go to is where do we pick up all these assets? Yeah. Well, in a, and we were chatting a little bit about this in the prep, but, you know, in, in a traditional kind of M&A scenario, you've got, you know, a more or less developed market or, a, um, you know, mature market and it goes through a downturn. You know, you've got distressed assets. There's, um, you know, kind of a traditional M&A process that happens where those gets bought up by stronger companies that get turned around, you know, get incorporated. But, you know, that's really just not the case in cannabis right now. I mean, it's like, A, I mean, I, th I think there's two kind of big factors. I mean, one is that we're still dealing with an early industry and two, it's, you know, the regulation is so crazy and that, you know, because it's all state by state, you have federal, federal legality issues. I mean, it, it seems like it's going to make it a fairly ugly <laughs> kind of M&A process. I mean, give, give me your sense of how you see some of these things playing out and where do you think some of the challenges are going to be in terms of, you know, companies that are distressed actually finding viable, you know, viable options? Sure. So here's the general approach I think most are going to take. They're going to take more of a traditional M&A approach where they're going to forget is you're dealing with almost across the board, 100% startups. See, with traditional M&A, 
and different industries go up and down. Something like this happens. Uh, a lot of companies don't make it. And then bigger companies have an opportunity or funds have an opportunity to be able to buy a lot of these distressed assets and then plug it into their own platform, mm-hmm. making themselves that much bigger, changing the direction of that distressed asset. The problem that a lot of these uh, funds are going to have right now is they're going to set up these funds. They're going to raise their money. They go out, go out and they're going to acquire these assets. They're nothing more than licenses and facilities. So most of these companies that are failing, they're not businesses. They don't really have that kind of brand equity built up with the general consumer for there to be value in buying them and turning them around as they are. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to be buying them and turning them around, one of the better ways is you got to plug it into your own platform. And in an industry where 90, 99% of companies are startups, none of them really have that platform to plug themselves into. So a lot of them will probably end up overextending themselves. You've got some ex- executives that have a little bit of an industry experience, and now they're going to go down the distressed asset fund. They're going to raise their money again, go and buy a, a lot of these assets. And by assets, we're really talking about licenses mm-hmm. and facilities. Without a business model in place, you just picked up somebody else's liability. Congratulations. Now you're the license holder. (laughs) You're holding the bag. Do you really want to get into the license ownership business when you don't have a way to really monetize that? That's different from what actually got it to be a distressed asset. So I think if you can crack that code where you can have more of a national platform, even an in-state platform where, look, this is the business model. We just need all these assets. The options for us are spend the next year or two chasing licenses pay a premium for these licenses or raise some money, go out and buy these assets and start plugging them into the platform. So unless they can crack it, it's going to be difficult. And I think you're going to see a hell of a lot of activity on the distressed asset front. In about 12 to 18 months, I think you're going to see some of those distressed asset funds become distressed themselves. Yeah, there's like a second round, you know, second round of distressed sales. And if and if they can't, I mean, if, if these companies can't find, you know, an, an option, what happens? I mean, do they just do they just dissolve? Do they? Um, what is the alternative if you can't find a kind of a strategic distress asset situation or you know exit? What do you do? Well, there's a lot. I mean, over the past year, you've been seeing receiverships pop up a lot more. Last year, we worked the receiver down in San Diego. Yeah, you got investors that are suing their uh, founders and the partners and the companies, and especially in times like this where people's monies are at risk and they can't really get their money out because of stock restrictions and stuff like that. Yeah, the alternative is file a lawsuit. So you're going to see a lot of uh, litigation and legal activity going on because there's still, and by still, there's still a couple of years, because there's still a lot of interest in the cannabis industry. Um, everybody thinks they could do it better. Everybody is just waiting for their opportunity and chomping yeah. at the bit yeah. where people are always going to have options. Now, everything's relative. What you could sell for today might be different than what you could sell for in six months versus 12 months. Yeah. But it's going to be pretty difficult to be in a situation where you close up the doors and you really don't have much left to show for it. So one way or another, there's always someone that's going to be in the market for an asset. And these guys ultimately, even if they take a big loss, even if they don't get the most dollar uh, out of their sale, they're going to be able to put some money in their pocket and walk away from it. Some sectors of the industry are going to have a much more difficult time. For instance, retail is going to be a little bit easier to get out of than cultivation. Uh, And on the cultivation front, you got one, too much cultivation going on. But two, when you're in a distressed situation, cultivation has probably the higher burn rate uh, on a monthly basis. So you really can't afford to hold out for the most bank. So. It just yeah, depends on- it's keeping the asset running could just cost so much that you know it, you're under time constraint. Absolutely, um, the focus. A lot of these companies that are not distressed assets that were initially looking for growth funds coming out of this coronavirus thing, because most of the money is going to be directed towards distressed asset funds, you're going to get pretty decent companies that are simply going to be evaluated as distressed assets. Just because that's the lens that everyone's going to be looking at the cannabis industry for a little while. Exactly. Yeah. So, and why on the retail side, what makes retail more likely to kind of tolerate this? Just their their underlying operational costs or? 
why, why do you think they're more likely to be able to handle this situation? One, they're a little, uh, the most consumer-facing sector of the industry, so they're able to build up that brand equity a little bit better. It's a sexier part of the industry, if you will. Mm-hmm. So if you found, if you go back even three years, four years, any investor you talk to, anybody you talk to, when you mentioned the uh, word Gambus business, the mind immediately went to retail operations dispensaries. Yeah. Yeah. So it's part lack of understanding of the other sectors and how to operate the other sectors. And when you're looking at traditional investors, traditional investors understand retail better than they do cultivation and production. Yeah. Things. Yeah. More accessible. Exactly. Yeah. And then it's easy. You only need anywhere from a hell. You can have a dispensary for as small as a thousand square feet. With cultivation, square footage matters more. The team matters more. Yeah. Uh, Competence matters more. With retail, you're no different than any other traditional retail business. You're dealing with a schedule one drug and a lot of cash. Learn to manage both of them. You really are no different. Mm -hmm. Retail customer experiences come into play. On the cultivation side, you're a production uh, arm. So Yeah. Yeah. And what about the uh, some of the manufacturing processing, kind of testing, things like that? Do you see, I mean, I know that the processing stuff, there's been a lot of, I don't know, kind of innovation and development and you know, people have kind of taken different approaches to processing. Do you see any of the processors that are going to be in a stronger or weaker position when it comes to kind of what happens in the later half of this year? Personally, I think manufacturing and the processing sector is by far the most scalable sector of the industry. Um, it's one of the sectors I really love. And the reason is you can be a 5,000 square foot operation in California. You can have a national footprint because once you develop the product and yeah. the formulation and everything, it becomes an IP licensing agreement where you're not bound by interstate commerce restrictions anymore. As long as you can find license holders and manufacturers in any of the given states that you're trying to go into. So as far as scalable and all that. I love the manufacturing sector. The problem with the manufacturing sector and the distressed asset side of it is once you have the license and you go beyond the license, your equipment is really what determines what you're in the business of manufacturing and producing. So yeah. and with that, everybody's the best at it. Everybody's got the idea for the <laughs> product. Yeah. And last year, you saw a lot of white label manufacturers pop up. But yeah. then a lot of folks are starting to understand is, look, we can go and access a lot of different contract manufacturers, white label manufacturers, stuff like that. But even for themselves, you've got to be a lot more than simply a logo and a brand name. And if you've got the same oil across 20 different companies with 20 different logos yeah. on it, they're really something different about you. And once you take your foot off the marketing dollars, your company's really not there anymore. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's why. But on the lab, uh, testing laboratory side, the problem is, again, scalability, it's just not there. The dollars and cents, they don't really stack up compared to like the other sectors uh, yeah. of the industry. And what people don't understand about the laboratory sector, and they underestimate it, is it takes a lot of money. I mean, look, with all the testing that goes on initially in the market that comes online, most of the products fail testing and the operator almost never takes responsibility for the failed testing. So if you got 10 operators that go to a testing laboratory and that testing laboratory fails their test results, instead of taking a look at what they did or what they did wrong or what they could have done right, they go back and say, well, it's the lab's fault. I'm going to go to a different lab. So <laughs> and they just get to shop the lab. Yeah. Yeah. The labs have a pretty high turnover rate as far as customers go for the first year or two of operations. And you're getting to an area where it's pretty scientific. And with the investors, when an investor writes a dollar, to some degree, they still want to be able to, if not participate, have some sort of say and have some sort of involvement. Not a lot of investors have that level of understanding and knowledge about a testing laboratory and the opportunity for the investor and the financial partner to participate with the operations. It's a lot more limited for testing laboratories, which is why you don't see too much investment activity in that sector. Yeah. I'm curious, do you get involved in the uh, hemp CBD space at all? Yes and no. The way we look at it is just the, it's the product itself shouldn't be different. The ingredient is different. So instead of a THC uh, mm-hmm. oil, you CBD oil in there. 
But we're pretty, we got our hands pretty full with the DHC stuff at the moment. Yeah, I can imagine. It's just, it's interesting to see how, how those two different markets are playing out, but both in terms of, you know, the legal side, you know, how it's being affected by uh, COVID and, and kind of the, um, the both health and kind of financial crisis. Uh, in terms of where, uh, where kind of products are going, I'm curious if you're, if you anticipate, I don't know, kind of a shift in demand or kind of the consumer side, you know, what people are going to want to buy, how they're going to want to buy it, you know, customer behavior. I mean, I was kind of curious if you are, are anticipating any kind of shifts in that given, you know, both whether it's the health side of things or the financial side of things, how that might play into things the latter half of, of 20 and 21. So that's going to be interesting because you have to look at the market that we have today. Today, it's really two markets, right? It's adult use and it's medical. Mm-hmm. But what we look at as two markets today, I think is going to turn into three markets in the future. What we call the medical market today is really your nutraceutical market of the future. Adult use is always going to be adult use. You're over the age of 21 and you choose to consume and you're going to consume. Mm-hmm. But I think the future true medical model is going to be more your pharma model, your transdermal patches, your sublinguals and nasal sprays and stuff like that. So if you look at it along those lines and go back to kind of like your question before that, if the future is going to turn into three markets where it's medical, nutraceutical, and adult use consumption, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a flavor of the month, different regions of the country, and hell, even within the state, have different cultures, different habits, and different consumption habits. So it's going to be pretty interesting. I think the East Coast is going to turn into more your traditional medical market with laboratories and stuff like that. Or Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. I got their clinical registrant license in partnership with Penn State. So they're going to be developing a lot of formulations, a lot of IP that can now be uh, exported out. Yeah. Uh, West Coast is going to be more your brand state, your consumption state. So it really depends on where you are regionally. But as far as market and what the buying habits are going to be, and here's why I love the manufacturing space. Almost anything that you can consume, you can infuse it. Now go figure out what your customer wants. Yeah. You got to think from your topicals and your sublinguals and your chocolates and all that stuff to suppositories and sex. Yeah, exactly. So the limitation, look at what traditional products are being consumed. Yeah, yeah, and just basically innovate based on that. Or figure out how you can infuse and incorporate, you know, yeah, or at least to gauge where it's going. Yeah. Anything in terms of kind of new market segments that you anticipate either, you know, being delayed or accelerating based on this? I mean, everyone's been talking about, you know, kind of uh, an older market being developed, you know, uh, new kind of segments coming in. Is there anything that you anticipate either slowing down or speeding up on that? I think the social equity stuff is going to slow down a little bit. A lot of these states and jurisdictions were having a really hard time implementing it and adopting something along along those lines. Yeah. And with everything going on coming out of this, unfortunately, I think it's going to be pushed to the back burner a little bit more. On one hand, it will be. On the other hand, you do have a little bit more interest that gets developed. Mm-hmm. But the more important thing is going to be to make sure that it doesn't get lost in all the noise and all the conversations that start happening after we come out of this. Yeah. Do you think that it's just just the economic pressure is going to is going to mean there's less space for that conversation or how how do you think that's going to play out? No, I think there're going to be so many different conversations whether it's being able to save the ones that are already issued the licenses, the investment dollars where are they going with the social equity stuff for the past 2-3 years no jurisdiction has really been able to create a meaningful yeah. social equity program and after 2-3 years there's just been a lot of frustration built up across the board. I think a lot of regulators will use this opportunity, this time of confusion to kind of push to the sides like, look, we understand, but we got to address what's in front of us right now before any of this other stuff. You'll still have the conversations. There's still going to be a lot of interest to push forward social equity programs. Ultimately, I think they're going to suffer. Um, I think some are going to take it as an opportunity to kind of revisit why the social equity programs aren't working. Mm -hmm. 
but by and far, I think all the conversations are just going to, in all the effort to push these conversations, I think it's going to end up diluting a lot of the conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Anything on, on the regulatory side, any, any big sort of shifts or, you know, how do you think regulators are going to respond to this or, or things they're going to be focused on, you know, in terms of, you know, just kind of shoring up their local markets, changing the regulations, changing policies, changing the process, which they're enforcing and things like what, how do you see this kind of shaping up in terms of a regulatory point of view? The regulators have been actually pretty great about the way they respond to this whole situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, right out the gate, before any real guidelines, the regulators started working with the license holders in any of their given states to make sure that, A, they stayed open, and this is before they were even deemed essential, how to stay open, adopting delivery opportunities for the brick and mortar dispensaries, where before that there was no delivery or at least not for that, between the curbside pickups were before the COVID stuff, product leaves your dispensary without any transaction, you're completely out of compliance. So the way the regulators have stepped up, it really has been fantastic and phenomenal. And when you're dealing with a lot of these regulators where a lot of the industry also doesn't understand this, most of these regulators have the right intentions in place, their heart's in the right place, their head's in the right place. They simply don't know enough about how the industry operates and moves for them to be able to adopt regulations or for them to be able to administer regulations appropriately. So if the industry can do their part in really educating them beyond their self-interest, more take more of a look, this is the industry, this is a problem for the entire industry, or this is not a problem for the industry, or this should yeah. be made better. The regulators, they're pretty receptive to a lot of a lot of input. The problem is a lot of folks, instead of taking a constructive approach to it, where it's like, look, this is your perspective, this is our perspective, let's come together. Let me tell mm-hmm. you what's keeping us up at night and you give me what your restrictions are so we can come to some sort of conclusion where instead of taking an approach like that, it just becomes finger pointing and blaming and yelling. Yeah, no good ever comes from that. Yeah, I agree. What advice or kind of things would you suggest cannabis companies focus on in the next, you know, over the next couple of months as COVID kind of takes its toll and, and things kind of get back to some kind of uh, new normal or, you know, stabilized to some extent? What are the things that cannabis companies can do to improve their chances, the speed of the recovery, you know, be well positioned to have future success? Anything that you'd, you'd suggest they look at or advise them on? I suggest to keep your gunpowder dry. Mm-hmm. Right now, cash flow management is going to be very crucial. Being able to attract the investment dollars is going to be very crucial. But keep your gunpowder dry. Use this opportunity not to hang around the house and walk back and forth. And look, it is what (laughs) it is. Shut down. We're probably not going to be open for another four to six weeks. Yeah. So what you do now is going to determine how you come out of this, how you greet the reopening. Because once it opens up in the world of business, companies fail, people fail. When it's all said and done, no one cares. Uh, life goes on, business keeps moving forward. So use this opportunity to really take a look at your company, break it down, look at the foundation. How, how's your company built? Have you been adding pressure to a foundation that wasn't built to go in the first place? Use this opportunity to really lay out your company, what you're about, what's different from you versus the next dispensary. Before, usually when I do speaking, I always say that the only time two growers ever agree on anything is when they agree the third one doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> across the board that's kind of in this industry so take it. a more of a self-examining approach to it it's like okay what makes me different from this company how is a customer getting a different retail experience coming to my shop versus going to that other shop yeah. right now you, there's a lot of opportunity to compete with the big MSOs because the MSOs have been just taking a beating across yeah. the board for the past year and they'll continue to do that so start looking for opportunities start exploring joint venture opportunities start exploring opportunities even if it's not a partnership explore opportunities on how you can work with other companies 
You take the labs, for instance, right? Laboratories shouldn't just be testing laboratories. If you have a relationship with the testing laboratory, now start building up a relationship where they can provide ongoing QA, QC services for you. They can test your product long before uh, you harvest. So you know you're going to fail six weeks before you're about to fail your test results. But really, it's don't get caught up in a lot of the hype. Don't get caught up in a lot of the smoke and mirrors. Don't get caught up in a lot of the social media conversations because the problem that does is when a lot of the operators and the executives get caught up in the social media conversations, they get drawn into a small little bubble where they don't see anything or hear anything beyond that bubble, beyond that conversation. Exactly. And that's where they're going to miss a lot of the opportunities. So really just use it as an opportunity to step back. You don't get a lot of chances where the entire world stops. Yeah, you exactly. Yourself. So yeah. Regroup, keep your gunpowder dry. Don't lose your focus and uh, keep pushing forward. You'll make it out. Wow. Yeah, well said. Well said. Avis, if people want to find out more about you, what's the best way to get that information? Uh, email is avis at sivallc.com. Website is sivallc.com, S-I-V-A-L-L-C.com. Awesome. And our social media is Siva Knows Best. All right. I'll make sure that those are in the show notes so people can click through and get that information. Avis, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Great conversation. I think that, um, uh, you know, some really good insights on the nature of the industry, how things uh, are, you know, possibly going to play out, likely to play out, uh, and some good words of advice for folks that are figuring out what to do at this time and, and how they can make it productive. So I really appreciate you taking some time today and talking with me. I appreciate everything, Bruce. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.